good to be with you this morning. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me? And as you take this posture, would you actually invite you to pray alongside me as I pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the speaking God. You spoke galaxies and stars, everything that we see into existence, into motion. And you speak to us personally and intimately. That Exodus 14 or not just writings and words from a sacred text, but we believe that these are your very transforming, life-changing words. And so would you help us pay attention to them? Not pay attention to just what I'm saying, but what is being said from your words, God. And so humbly I ask, would you help us in that understanding? Jesus, we come into this moment to say that you have all authority. What you say goes. We come to this moment to recognize that you're the holder of truth. And so we want to hear what that truth is. And we also recognize that you have all the power. And so we want to submit ourselves to that power. And so would you teach us, train us, correct us, rebuke us, help us, God. Jesus, you're invited. Please fight on behalf of us to hear what you might have for us today. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. I was uh, a classic Butterfinger kid, and what I mean by that is not that I had a trail of Butterfinger candy wrappers behind me, but I was incredibly clumsy growing up. I love sports, I love competition, but I could not do them all that well for the life of me. I always tried. Everyone would always tell me, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, Tyler, you got heart, man, which means... I appreciate the effort, but you're not that good. And I always appreciate the encouragement. But it'd be like, I'd be like playing with friends and catch the football and be like one, two, and then drop it, which I'm like, come on. This reality for me has kind of messed with me throughout my life. If you play any board games with me or any kind of competitive game with me, you will find out very quickly, I talk mess. Like I am competitive and I'm talking trash to you, about you. It's, it's not good. Many of you who've played with me are laughing right now because you know it's true. And the reason for that is because I've lost confidence in my actual ability to compete. That's really what's happening for me. It's also fun, but I am. I'm, like truthfully, deep down inside, I'm losing some confidence. And so I'm posturing in such a way to have fun and stay in the game when usually I'm like dead last or second to last or third to last if I'm having a good day. Similarly, I think the reality for all of us is that at some point in time, we lose confidence. We lose confidence in either ourselves, we lose confidence in something that we have once held as ultimate or we valued. Something happens to where confidence wanes a bit. And so then we posture ourselves in a particular way. We take a particular posture as a way to cope with and deal with a losing of confidence. We have just wrapped up a series of Hold That Pose which is just us taking time to actually slow down and ask, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Like, what does it mean to wait in his presence, to wait on him? And in so doing, preparing our hearts for what is coming in a series and a season of prayer and fasting called Show Me Your Glory, where we want to be a people who wait, but who are confident and bold to ask the Lord, would you show us who you are? Would you show us more of yourself? Would you show us your very glory? And so we wanted to take this interim time between that series and this next one that's starting and just focus in on Moses. Moses, who was, had enough confidence and boldness to ask God to show me his glory. Show me your face, God. And so Peter Kim kicked us off this last week, and I get to continue that effort today. And I want us to recognize 
particularly, how did Moses move? If you've read Exodus, you will know he was not a confident guy. Peter talked about this last week in Exodus 3. How did he all of a sudden have confidence to get to a place by which he's able to say to the Lord, show me your glory? How did he get there? And I think Exodus 14 helps us see that. And I think Exodus 14 helps us answer this question. When we've lost confidence, how do we posture? So what we're going to do, I'm going to start off by repeating verse 13 and 14 because this is the crux of our time together, and it will shape the whole of this chapter for us. Verse 13, Exodus 14, it says this, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord be silent. Or another way to say it, be still. What I want us to see and what I think we are going to see from this passage is that your past enemies will return. And when they do, they will try to to claim ownership over you. But what I want you to hear is they have been decimated by the warrior king. And for us to really understand that truth, that your past enemies have been decimated by the warrior king, for us to understand that, we need to be shaped by what's, what's being said here in 13, to stand, to see, and to be still. And so our whole time together is going to be shaping around that. Stand, see, and be still. Stand firm, see the greatness of God, and be still in his presence because your past enemies have been decimated by a warrior king. For us to start on this and to endeavor and just to help us organize, we're going to start with this first reality. We have to start with an orienting question. And here's what this first orienting question is. When your past enemy returns to claim ownership over you, what is your posture? We just need to start very simply. What's your posture? When past enemies return to claim ownership over you, what is your posture? Well, to understand that, let's look at the posture of God's people toward their past, both physically and emotionally, um, as their past enemy returns. And I don't want to over-spiritualize Exodus 14. I'm not asking you to think about the pharaohs that are in your life, but the Old Testament and the biblical theology and narrative, this is the salvific event in the Old Testament, and it is a foreshadow, a a picture of what is to come in Christ, that the people of God are being rescued from slavery, an imposter king, Pharaoh, an enemy. So in this moment, when a past enemy returns to claim ownership over you, what is your posture? So we'll see here both in verses one through five. Let's, let's camp here for a second. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. Okay, so turn back. What's happening? So the people of God have been rescued. Some think it's been about a couple months that they have exodus out of Egypt. The plagues have happened. God in his warrior reality has essentially beat down Pharaoh to rescue his people. And the whole purpose of that was so that God would have a people who would worship and serve him out in the desert, in the wilderness, on the way to the promised land. Okay? So they're on their way. Then something peculiar happened. Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp of encamp in front of Piharath, between Migdal Sea, in front of Balzaphon. The big thing to know here. We're not certain exactly what the locations are on the map, but we are certain of this, that they were between wilderness and the sea. God interrupted them as they were going to where he promised to take them, and he turned them around, and he encamped them using these words in verse 3. They are wandering the land. The wilderness has shut them in. This is what the Egyptians will say. 
Another way to think of shut in is isolated. God is purposely turning God's people back around to be isolated between the wilderness and the sea at their back to be alone. This is their physical posture. What we see first, their physical posture, we see them isolated. We see them standing alone. And physically, they're literally, geographically, nowhere to go. (laughs) Then, emotionally, as Pharaoh and the Egyptians show up in the wilderness, it's like the horizon line of the wilderness is being filled in with hordes of enemies. As that's happening, we see here in verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. So physically, we see them isolated. Emotionally, we see them isolated, meaning they look up, and all they can see is that, and they have fear. They're greatly fearing their enemy. They recognize there's no match for them. So that's the first posture that they're taking. The second posture that they're taking when their enemy is returning and to claim ownership over them. I don't know if you caught this, but in verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? The people of God's past enemies want to claim ownership on them again. That's what is being said in this moment. And so that happening, we see the people of God standing alone in isolation, and we see them viewing, seeing the terrible greatness of their enemy. I can't imagine a horizon line of the wilderness. If you've ever been to the desert, but all of a sudden it's just hordes of enemies coming towards you, and you have nowhere to go. That's what's happening in this moment. So physically, they're in some emotional distress, and they cry out. In verse 10, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, coming out of that fear, that great fear that they're having. And emotionally, what do they do? Verses 11 and 12, what we see, they blame shift. Did you see it? They look to Moses, and they're like, what, there wasn't enough graves in Egypt? We had to come out to the wilderness to be, to be killed? This is why we told you we don't want to leave. He keeps saying this over and over again. We told you, leave us alone. So physically, as we see it, they're, they're shut in, they're standing isolated, they're physically seeing the greatness of their enemy, they're in fear, they're blame shifting, they're crying out, this is the posture. And finally, the third part of their posture, when their enemy is returning to claim ownership over them, is this. They see their trusting stillness give way to complaint and anger and frustration. They're trusting stillness. And I want you guys to think of stillness as waiting. Everything that we've been laboring to talk about through the Psalms of hold that pose, it's this waiting on God that God will come through. And why I say that they were trusting in God and they were being still in that is because in chapter 13 at the end, before we get here, we see this cloud of pillar and fire and they're happily following this in that moment. That God is providing a provision of, of guidance, pillar, a uh, cloud of pillar, uh, 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 fire. We see these realities here, and they are walking and following and being guided, and they're trusting that. But because this pillar, this, what God is doing, has led them to this place of isolation and aloneness, they're all of a sudden giving way. They're, they're trusting stillness. They're waiting in God, and for God is giving way to complaint and anger and frustration. So what do we see? We see that the people of God have enemies who are returning, and they're returning for one purpose, to claim ownership over them. And what's their posture? They're standing in isolation. They're seeing their enemies, and they're trembling in fear. And they are 
their stillness has given way to complaint and to anger and to frustration. So as I hear this, as I've wrestled with this, as I've been turning this inward into my own heart, a couple of questions that I want to pose to you have been posed to my own heart this week. Who are your past enemies? Who are the enemies in your life? The enemies of your heart and soul. Now, it may not be like a superhero villain type reality, but is there some kind of enmity that you have experienced in your life? Who is that? What is that? What does that look like? And every time that enemy has tried to return to claim ownership over you, what was that like? What has that been like? What is that like? And what has your posture been? First, past enemies. I think for us to understand that, to wrestle with these questions and to really understand what's going on, what our posture is, right? Because we want to understand that our past enemies have been decimated by a warrior king. We want to stand firm in that. We want to see the greatness of that. We want to be still in that. So we have to orient ourselves with this question. When your past enemies have returned, what is your posture? So let's try to understand past enemies. This is not an exhaustive, comprehensive list. There may be more but these are some that have been in my life. They're some that I know others have had or experienced. First, it might be something like this. Maybe you have been so hurt in your life by someone, or you have so hurt someone in your life that it just is right here in front of your face. <laughs> like the way that you view the world is through that pain. That enemy of pain and hurt, the enemy of your soul against joy and love and compassion and empathy, it just keeps coming right here in front of your face and you can't seem to get around it. You can't seem to get over it or through it. Maybe that's an enemy that has come to say, this is exactly who you are. You are this person. You are wounded in this way. Maybe you've been experiencing suffering personally. Or maybe you've been walking with someone who's been experiencing suffering and there's no explanation for it. It feels like it's come out of nowhere. It feels like it's, why? And you find yourself worn down and exhausted because it's just there and it won't go away. Or maybe it's, maybe it's sin. Maybe it's particularly a sin that you wish was just in your past. You've begged God to take it away over and over and over again, and you wrestle with it, and it feels like every single time you wrestle, that sin is on top of you, not the other way around. And you're like, what is going on? This enemy seems to have so much power, so much authority. How? How do I, how do I battle this? How do I get through this? Maybe it's an insatiable ambition, and it's cracked relational unity in your spouse's life, in your kid's life, in your family life. Maybe... It's an unforgiveness towards someone who has hurt you and harmed you. And you thought, you know what? I could never forgive them and I don't want to. I want to trap them in this prison. I want to give them a cold shoulder. But you started to realize, actually, I'm trapped in this prison. <laughs> I feel the cold shoulder. What do I do with this? It's rooted so down in my heart and soul. It's bitter wormwood. It tastes terrible. Maybe you're hearing lies and accusations that's filling you with self-doubt and self-hatred. Maybe you're experiencing fear that's unexplainable and it's leading you to anxiety that internally you're so wound tight. If everyone knew what you were thinking, what you were experiencing, they would be like, let me help cut that tension for you. And it's starting to crack out externally. Like I said, this is not comprehensive, but something I know I've experienced, a number of these, 
Maybe you have too. Maybe you're experiencing something else. But this is the point of the orienting question. You have enemies that are returning to rule over you. What is your posture? Is your posture like the people of God in Exodus 14? Because of this, because they're coming to claim ownership over you, it feels like they're overtaking you. It feels like you're being swallowed up by them. It feels like they've come to just take you out, that they want you to serve that and not God. So you find yourself alone and isolated. You're standing alone. Or you find yourself seeing the terrible greatness of your enemies, and you're like, there's no greater power than that. Your stillness is giving way to complaint and anger and frustration. When your enemies return, what is your posture? Now that our hearts are oriented in this direction, we need to understand, can our posture change? Is that even possible? What would that look like? And here's something that has been an amazingly beautiful truth in my heart, and I want it to be an amazingly beautiful truth in yours, because this is the beginning to shift this posture for you. The shift away from standing in isolation, the shift away from seeing this as an all-consuming, fearful power, a shift away from stillness giving way to complaint and anger and frustration. And this beautiful truth is this. God is not mad at you. He's fighting for you. Friends, I need you to hear this because it's true. God is not mad at you. He's fighting for you. Let me try to prove this out for you. In verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? I want to pause right here. So literally, the people of God have come to Moses and they're blame shifting, which means they're blame shifting to God because Moses is God's man in that place, in that moment. He's the mediator. And so he's, they're like, why did you save us from this place? Is there not enough graves in Egypt? Like, why are we out here? Why are we so alone? What is going on? And I want to ask this question rhetorically to you, and I want you to think about it for a second. When you see the phrase, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? What's the tone of God's voice in your mind? Because this is God speaking. What's the tone? Is it angry? Is it irritated? Is it condemning? Is it, how could you? How could you posture yourself that way? And I want to tell you that that's not what God says or thinks. That is not who he is. If you look throughout all of biblical narrative and scripture, God's character is utterly different than that. I want to say, if you read that question, why do you cry to me? God asking that and pausing it to the people of God or pausing it to you in your posture when your enemies have returned and they're all surrounding you. I want to pause it that that's not the Lord's voice. That's someone else. Here's why. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. It says this. The Lord passed before him. Moses says later on, it says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you start to see God's character? Because <laughs> God's character will backfill the way he's interacting with his people, the way that he's speaking. Who is this God? He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast, immovable, it will never change, loyal love for you. He's not mad at his people. He's not mad at the Israelites for their posture in this moment. He's fighting for them. And this is proven true as Jesus, the eternal son of God, incarnated in the flesh and showed up on this earth two millennia ago 
Matthew 9 points us directly into the heart of the Father in this moment, into his character, Jesus, as the visible image of the once invisible God. In Matthew 9, 35 through 36, it says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Friends, because your enemies have returned, because they try to come back to you time and time again, and because you are afraid and you posture yourself in, in isolation and seeing that fear and giving your stillness, giving way to complaint, he's not mad because he's not mad at the people of God here. That's not his character. So what is he doing instead? Three things, stand, see, be still. First, God's posture. God's posture is that he's standing for them. He's standing with them, and he's standing in the dark spaces in between. Back here in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. He's standing for the people of God. He's standing with them. 19, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel. The angel of God here, what this means is essentially tying back to the cloud, the pillar of fire. It's the tangible presence of God with his people. I'm going to fight for you. I'm standing for you, and I'm standing with you. Did you see it? Was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. Verse 20, he's coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. Remember, wilderness, hordes of enemies coming. See at the back, the angel of God, the cloud, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire show up right between in the dark space of uncertainty. And the people of God see that God is standing for them, with them, and in between in that dark space where I don't know how this is going to go and I don't know what's going to happen. He's standing for them, with them, and in the dark spaces. His great saving power is seen. It's displayed. Did you see it here in verse 21 and a couple other spots? Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back. I mean, can you imagine? We believe that this is a real event, that the hordes of Egypt are coming and they seem to be most powerful and most, most to be feared. And then all of a sudden you see a body of water split in two to give you safe passage. The great saving power of God on display. Then we see something happen. Instead of the people complaining in their fear, their stillness returns and it increases their capacity for belief. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Stand, see, be still. This is God's posture, posture towards his people. His people posture in the same way, but God's posture towards them is to stand with them, for them, and in between the dark spaces. To see his great saving power displayed and to draw stillness of his people back to him, to increase belief in who he is and what he's done. My house is kind of wild right now, which I've shared a couple times. I've got three boys, four-month-old. By the way, please don't tell new parents if you ever see one sleeping like a baby because babies don't sleep well. I don't know if you ever knew this. <laughs> babies don't sleep well. That's not a good phrase that uh, denotes like actually sleeping well. But that's my house. The baby, he's trying to sleep well. And I have two three-and-a-half-year-olds. If you've ever interacted with three-and-a-half-year-olds, you know that they have a hard time listening because in their development, they want control. 
So that's, that's our house right now. It's a bunch of three-year-olds, three majors is what I call them, who want control desperately. <laughs> and particularly around the potty, which I don't think I'm ever going to call a bathroom anything but the potty again. And just two days ago, one of my boys, I, we were doing something, we are having fun, and I tell him, hey bud, we're going to pause and you're going to try to go potty. Because he's, he's just been having so much fun, he doesn't want to slow down, and sometimes he's been having accidents, so I'm trying to help him, trying to help him, trying to help him. And he literally tells me, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm like, all right, man, here we go. It felt like a high stakes hostage negotiation. I was like, come on, boy, let's just walk 20 feet to the bathroom. We'll come right back. And we finally get in. And I'm like, here we go. He's about to get up there. And then he breaks down and he starts crying. And he's like, Papa, Papa, you hurt my feelings a little bit. And I'm like, oh no, what did I do? What did I say? Because I, you know, I am not best dad of the year award. Like I get upset and angry, especially when I'm in an intense high stakes hostage negotiation of getting him to the bathroom. Just listen to me. And as I was in this moment with him and I was thinking about the father's heart for me and I kneeled down and I told him, I was like, bud, I'm sorry. I hurt your feelings. I didn't mean to. I want you to know I'm just here with you to like help you out. I'm not mad at you. Everything's okay. And it literally dawned on me, this is what God is trying to tell me and tell you. The biggest parental discipline in my very limited experience that I am learning right now is how to convince my boys that I'm not mad at them when they think I'm mad at them. You think God is mad at you and he's not. You think because you've postured in the face of your enemies that he is done with you? He is not. And in my very sinful, less than perfect, and not eternal, and not infinite father heart, I'm trying to fight with my boys to help them see this life in a different way, to help them in instruction and discipline and care. How much more is the God of the universe who is our father in heaven, how much more is he doing that? That he is not mad at you. He's fighting for you. He's standing with you, for you, and in between the dark spaces. So I want you to hear, just like the Israelites, I'm certain we're feeling in this moment that God is not mad at you. He's fighting for you. So do not hear his voice in any way because this will start to change your posture. Instead of turning this direction to be alone, instead of seeing the greatness of your enemies and being afraid, and instead of your stillness giving way to fear and anger and complaint, You'll start to turn because you notice that God's posture towards you is different. That he's standing with you, for you. That he's showing his great, powerful display of salvation. And he is helping your stillness return. So we needed an orienting question first. Then we have this beautiful truth right here. And then finally, this invitation. I want you to hear this invitation to follow a servant who's going to lead you into a posture change. Here's what it is. Do you see the silent servant who's standing with you? Do you see the silent servant who's standing with you? First, let's orient our reality around what is happening here with the people of God. That Moses, do you know in this whole picture, in this whole scenario, in this whole narrative, Moses speaks one time. That's it. He speaks one time. And literally what he is saying is, we, don't, we just have to be silent. We just got to be still. God's going to fight for us. Fear not, stand firm, be still, see his greatness. That's it. The rest of the time, and Moses shows up all throughout, what is he doing? Well, here, I'm going to jump. I have it listed here. I'm going to try to help you see that Moses is only, he's not really saying much, but he's doing a lot. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people. So we see that in verses 1 through 2. We see in 10b through 11a, the people of Israel come to Moses. They cried out to the Lord. Then because of that, they said to Moses this. Then in verse 13, Moses actually speaks the only time. Moses said to the people, and he's pointing them back to God's posture. Then in 15a, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? And he gives him instruction. Then in 21a, we see that Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and he's obeying God in this moment. Then in 26a, the, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. And then we end with 31, where Moses is named the servant of God. Moses, in this moment, he is a silent servant. And God is positioning him in a place for his people to follow him, to change their posture, to move their posture closer to God's posture for them. What we recognize, if, if we're tracking in our hearts, and I, I'm trusting that the Lord is doing this, is when our enemies return to claim, to claim over us, and we see our posture the way that it is, it makes sense, and when we see God's posture displayed, we're like, man, Tyler, that sounds nice. I wish I could trust that and believe that, but there's still a whole horde of enemy here. Something feels missing. Something feels missing. And this is where I want you to hear. You don't just need something to change your posture in the midst of the hardest parts of your life, in the midst when your enemies are coming to you and surrounding you and you feel like you're drowned by them and you're overrun by them. You don't need something. You don't need, just need more self-help. You don't just need a different point of view, although those things can be helpful. You need someone. Just like the people of God needed someone. They had Moses. What they need, we need to change our posture, to see this confidence grow in us, that God is who he says he is and has done what he has said he's done and what he has showed us. We need one who stands for God with his people and for his people. We need one who displays the power of God in his humble posture. We need one who is silent but very active. We need a silent servant to follow in this posture change to no longer be alone, to no longer see the great fear of our enemy and let that drown us, to no longer see our stillness moved, our joy moved away from those realities into complaint and anger and frustration. We need a silent servant. So do you see the silent servant? He's inviting you to follow him. Moses is just the beginning. It's promised later in Deuteronomy that one will come in the likeness of Moses, but will be greater than Moses. A silent servant who's going to do something beyond what Moses did. And that person is Jesus. Jesus is one who stood with his people. He was the eternal son from eternity past, present, future, and he incarnated down. He didn't have to. In fact, it's almost offensive he did because he's God, but he loved you and I. He was not mad at you. He was fighting for you. And he's like, I'm going to go get you. I'm going to step into time. I'm going to put flesh on. And I'm going to stand with you and for you and in between the dark spaces. When you read the gospels, you see Jesus doing this time and time and time again. This was his life. It was marked by it. We see Jesus, the true silent servant, as he stands in the face of death on a Roman cross, displaying true power in, against our greatest enemies, sin, shame, death, Satan. We see him pushing back as his 
final breath is drawing, and we see that in fullness on the third day when he runs out of the tomb. He's out conquering death, conquering the final enemy, the most powerful enemy. And we see, not only is he standing with our people, this true silent servant, he is showing and helping us see his great saving power. And we recognize that he is a silent, yet active, still servant. He takes his cross, what other passages in scripture call our curse, this cursed tree, and he marches it from Pontius Pilate's court to a hill outside of town and doesn't say much, if not anything, and he does that because he's not mad at you, he loves you, and he's fighting for you. And here is the more beautiful reality. This silent servant is inviting us to follow him into a posture change, that your enemies do not have to rule over you because he has all authority and power and truth. And not only is he the silent servant, but he's also a warrior king. He's the warrior king that has decimated our enemies. He is the one who is actually able to let us get to a place of standing and seeing and being still. And he's asked us just that. Just be still. Just stand firm. Just see my greatness and I will fight for you. And I'm convinced that if we do that, belief and expectancy will expand beyond our greatest hopes and joys. That if we just do exactly what he's inviting us to do, this silent servant, this warrior king, then we can all stand and say, our past enemy has been decimated, has been decimated by a warrior king. So the invitation is simple, friends. Stand firm, see his greatness, and be still. And from this place, I am trusting and expectant that we will grow in confidence and boldness from our heart and our soul to get to a place like Moses, to ask God, show me your glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. You're so gracious to us. Thank you that you've spoken to us. Thank you that we can open this and feast on it. Thank you, Jesus, that you brought what was once invisible to the visible. Thank you that you have been standing with us, standing for us, that you're in the dark spaces in between of uncertainty. Thank you that you have shown us your great saving power and you are inviting us into a stillness that expands our belief and expectancy for what you will do. Thank you that you have decimated our past enemies. So I pray for my friends in the room who have been following you for some time. Would you help us answer the call to follow our silent servant, you, Jesus, our warrior king? And would that, as we become aware and name past enemies, and as we look at your posture towards us, that you're not mad and you're fighting for us, would we answer this invitation to live into that posture change? That we don't have to be alone. That we don't have to be afraid. That we can be still. Lord, for my friends in the room who may still be wrestling with, the, with your claims, Jesus, that you are who you said you are, that you really have done what you have said you've done, I pray, God, would you let them see just a little crack of light? Would you let them just see just a little bit of a parting to show that you can and have and are willing to decimate 
their enemies. Because you're a warrior king and you're a silent servant. So Jesus, grow confidence in us. Grow boldness in us. May we be a people who ask you time and time again to meet with us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.